Turn with me, if you would, please, in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 5, verse 11. We're going to be picking it up where we left off. We did the first 10 verses of the chapter. We're going to do four more to finish the chapter, and then just three verses in chapter 6. So it's 5, 11 to 6, 3. Hebrews 5, 11. And again, if you don't have your Bible, totally okay. Almost everything that I have, every verse I will go through, I'll be putting up here on the screen behind me in the biggest font that I could possibly do. So I always try to think, I, I am, my vision is terrible and it gets worse as I get older, so I try to use the biggest font that I can. So, all right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for you, for who you are. You are the good, good Father, and so it's to you we draw near right now. Through your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we want to hear from you. And so, Lord, touch my lips just to speak your truth and love tonight. May your word fall on good soil in our hearts. Whatever tending you need to do to our hearts right now, just do that work by your spirit. But we pray the seed would fall on good soil and bear much fruit. But this time is yours. Rule and reign in this place, we pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. In Hebrews 5, verse 11, we're going to press on to maturity tonight, and we're going to just jump right in. There isn't, like last time, a need for a historical background or family tree. You'll see in the first verse here, the hymn it's talking about is Melchizedek. And you don't really need to know much about him. If you missed last week, it's really not about him. In fact, it says, you guys, as I'm explaining it, didn't understand it last time anyway. Uh, again, speaking to the Hebrews, I know you guys understood it. Um, but we're going to jump right in, Hebrews 5.11. It says, concerning Melchizedek, we have much to say. And it's hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. And we're going to read all seven verses, and we'll come back through them one by, one by one. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God, about instructions about washings and of laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits." gets pretty wordy there at the end. We're going to break it down to make it much simpler. There's some pretty heavy topics. But we start here in the first verse. And he tells them, hey, I want to tell you guys a bunch of stuff. I want to dig deep into the things concerning some of these great types that we have in the Old Testament. Melchizedek, a type of Christ, the great high priest who Jesus comes from that line. But he says, it's hard to explain. Not because the topic or the subject matter is, in fact, hard to explain, but because they're dull of hearing. And that dull of hearing, please understand this, it's not saying that there's something wrong mechanically or physically with their ears. It's saying, if you look at the Greek word, it's the Greek word nephros, it means that they are sluggish. They are slothful. They are lazy in their hearing. Hebrews 6, if you actually were to read a little bit farther, it uses the same word. Hebrews 6.11 says this, We desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. So that you will not be, and there it is, sluggish, but imitators of those who faith and patience inherit the promises. And I like when you have a verse that uses the same word, and then here you have later on, it actually gives the, what we call the antonym, the opposite. It says, you know, we wanted you to be diligent, 
but instead you were sluggish, you were lazy. And so if you look back there, he's saying they're dull of hearing. And I, and I wonder, okay, they're lazy of hearing, but what does that look like? What does that manifest? How do I know if I, in fact, maybe are like the Hebrews and I'm dull of hearing? Well, he goes on to say, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. We're going to break that in half. We're going to say, the first part says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, and understand this, there's a, a great commission that went out from Jesus himself, and I, I changed this color of the background just so that the words in red would show up. I got some feedback last time. When you're red up there, it looks like nothing. So Matthew 28, 18 says, and Jesus came up and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And it's a command from the Lord himself at the very end of the book of Matthew that we are meant to go out and be teachers. We are supposed to be those who tell others about the saving grace of Jesus Christ. And in Romans, we have this beautiful passage that says in Romans 10, 13, it's the last part of the Roman road, which is pretty cool. So you take people down the Roman road. The Roman road says, hey, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We get that. It goes on to say, whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And it's for anybody. But I love this next part. Because that's the, that's the message but how then will they call on Jesus in whom they have not believed? Like, how are they going to reach out to the Lord to be saved if they don't really know about him? How will they believe in him who they've not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent, just as it's, just as it's written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things? Understand this, you were given a title. You were given a title in 2 Corinthians 5.20 that you, in fact, are an ambassador for Christ. Therefore, we are an ambassador for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through each of us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him, who, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And so that's what it's saying. By this time, you ought to have been teachers, but you have need again for someone to teach you, verse 12, the elementary principles of God, and you come to need milk and not solid food. He goes on to call them, for everyone, a little bit of a name calling here, it gets very interesting, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. He's talking to a bunch of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80-year-old men and women who were Jews who came to Christ, and he's calling them a bunch of, bunch of babies. And so physically, you know, they look probably something like this. They probably thought they had it all put together. Here I am, you know, in my suit, I'm the boss, I have a job, I'm, I'm pretty diligent in those ways. I'm, I'm, like, I'm like Thor, the god of thunder, in a suit. I look great. And in the female version, you're like, yeah, I'm, I'm something, I'm put together, I'm, 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 I'm an older person, I've got it all together. But God is telling them spiritually, no, 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 spiritually, you look like that. You've, you're not on solid food. You're, you're sucking the binky right there. You are a baby with milk only. And so it's quite an 
it, it's quite a reality check for them who thought that they were something, but in reality, he says spiritually, you in fact are like infants. And he goes on to describe what that means. What does it mean to be an infant in Christ? First Corinthians um, chapter three describes it this way. It says, and I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, to spiritual grown-ups, to spiritual adults, but as to men of flesh, so as to infants in Christ. See, he makes the, 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 the attachment to the idea of carnality. Fleshly Christians are those who are infants in Christ. He says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not yet able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're not yet able, for you are still, bless you, fleshly. For since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? And are you not walking like mere men? Again, he describes being an infant in Christ and those who are on milk, the same passage we're looking at in Hebrews, the idea that they are simply fleshly Christians. So then it's just, but to me, it's still like you're using, you're using Christianities, you're using Christianese. Um, you're using, okay, you call them an infant, then you say they're being fleshly. Like, can you just break it down a little simpler so I understand what that means, what that looks like? That's how I think, at least. And in Galatians 5, I think it breaks it down to say, what exactly is it a fleshly Christian look like? He says, smallest font of the day, if you're wondering, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So he's going to make a dichotomy between spirit and flesh. He says, for the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law anymore. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, now he's being real, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions. Oh, it goes on. Envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But he gives the opposite. So that's what fleshy looks like. What's it look like when you're in the spirit? The fruit of the spirit is love, manifested as joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh and its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. And so he makes that simple illustration. You guys are like a bunch of babies, implying definitely that they are carnal Christians, implying that they are of the flesh and what the flesh looks like here the list there from verse 20 through 21, 20, 19 through 21, really. And he even gives the opposite in case you're like, well, what does it not look like again? He gives the fruit of the Spirit. So here they are dealing as full adults, but looking like spiritual infants. And he says here, but solid food in verse 14 is going to be for the mature. So now he's bringing in the opposite. So you guys are like infants on milk, but there are going to be this other side where you could be solid food for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. I started thinking about that, and I think Ephesians 4 is probably the verse, the bunch of verses from 11 to 16 that, that best describe what it looks like to be on that mature side. And it says, And he gave some as apostles some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. 
I'll let you know, I used to read that, and I used to be like, not me, not me, not me, not me. That's cool. I'm kind of checked out. God gave some to do that. That's Pastor Michael. That's other people. Okay, great. And then I was like, so I pretty much am absolved of any responsibility, because this is for them. He gave those callings. But he gave them for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. Wait, wait. That means he gave leadership roles to certain men and women to do the thing to equip you and I to do the work of the ministry, to do the work of service. We're the saints. We're supposed to be doing that. Okay, so now the responsibility is back on me to the building up of the body of Christ. Verse 13, until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man and woman, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be infants, children. And those children are tossed here and there, to and fro, if you will, by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness in deceitful scheming. But, speaking the truth in love, we are able, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted together and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. You have a responsibility to be mature and to grow as a body in Christ so that the whole body can in fact grow. It's not a one-person race. God wants each of us to press on to maturity that we would be a part of growing not just ourselves, but the body here. And I love verse 14. I mean, it makes it real. No longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. Well, I read online that. Well, my friend told me that maybe there's another way to be saved. I heard online that we should also be doing no, no. When you're no longer a child, but you've matured in the faith, when those heresies, those fallacies, those straight-out lies, because they're sent from people who are literally trying to deceive you, who are not, oh, I was ignorant, I didn't know. No, the Bible says clearly here, there are men out there who are trying to deceive you, that are trying to lead you astray, that take joy in the idea of pulling God's sheep away from the shepherd. But speaking the truth in love, we can grow up. And again, because we want to be part of that whole body growing up. So Ephesians 4 really does stress the idea of why is it important that we press on to maturity? You're like, man, he's, there's seven verses, and he's just covered four of them. We're going to get out to the in and out really early today. Um, perhaps, but no, here's the, 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 the main text we're going to cover, because he covers this idea, and he's talked about it uh, earlier in verse 12, but he's going to lay out the idea of elementary teachings about the Christ. He's going to say there are some baseline things that you as believers in Christ should know. And we're going to review those today. I broke them down to five categories, but we look at them and it says, therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity. So he's saying, we need to go past these things. Let me tell you what those things were. I don't want to lay again, he says, a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God. Instructions about washings. Some of your Bibles will say baptisms there. And laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Those five things he said, and this will do God permitting. So these elementary teachings, again, he breaks it down fivefold. 
repentance from dead works and faith towards God, instructions about washings, baptisms, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. We're gonna look at those one, two, three, four, and five. Very, you could spend, honestly, a whole hour on each one of those topics. We're not gonna do that, obviously, because we don't have six hours left. Uh, but we are gonna just go one, um, kind of an overview, rather quickly, but we'll dig into some Bible verses that will give you some assurance and some places to go and maybe study further on those things. So look at that first one, repentance from dead works and a faith towards God. Ephesians 2.1 simply says this, and this is a little bit of a longer one. It says, and you, me, all of us, were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Meaning before we came to Christ, we were sinners and we were dead in our sins and trespasses. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. It's like, we're just like everybody else. Everybody is like that. But God, it says, being rich in mercy, so we were dead, but now God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. We know this verse, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it's, it's a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And I take you here to look at this idea that we were dead in sin and trespasses, and then we repented of that. And what caused us to change our mind, that's the word repent means, to change our mind about that is because we were made aware of another option. See, God, I want you to think of it right here. Think of this as a gift. I'm just an imaginary floating gift in the sky. It's a gift that's it's been beautifully wrapped like a Christmas gift. It's got a bow on around it and then ribbon. It's just, it's a gift. That gift, you see, is the salvation of God. That gift is God providing everything. He provided his son as the perfect sacrifice to die on the cross for our sins, rose again the third day, and triumphed over death and the grave to give you life. And it's right there, and it is finished. Nothing else added to it, nothing else needed. That gift is the full package of salvation through Christ alone, amen? amen? Now, understand this. The mode by which you now take possession of that gift is through repenting, that is saying, I no longer want to be associated with my sin. I want my sin to be what Jesus died for, and I want to receive that free gift. Now, physically, we have no means by which we can grab a spiritual thing that God has done. So what we do by faith is that mode by which we reach out with our heart by faith and we capture that gift and we trust in that and we lean on that and we say the only way that I know I'm getting to heaven is because of that gift. That is faith. And that's what that looks like. Amen? Amen. And so we put all our faith, all our trust in that gift alone. I'm not getting there on my own good works. I'm not getting there because of something I did. I'm not getting there for any reason whatsoever other than I believe that that gift that free grace of God is what's going to save me. 
And so when we repent from dead works, it, that's why these are paired together. Some people think that they're two different things, like, oh, there's one. No, they're, they're, they're like hand in hand. You turn from one and you turn to the other and you lean on this with all that you have to be saved. The next one says, okay, so we should get that. It's pretty, you're right. You're right, that is a pretty foundational thing about our faith. We should understand we turn from our sin and we turn to the free gift of God. Now, it says there's, okay, so that's one of the five. Now we have instructions about washings and baptisms. Again, if you've got an NASB, like we're reading up here tonight, if you've got the NIV, your, your Bible will actually say washings. If you've got a new King James Version, a King James Version, your Bible will say doctrines about baptisms. Um, it's the same word. And so that, that word washings, uh, I'm going to give you a little background. It's, the root word of it is, is this word baptizo in the Greek, okay? It means to submerge, and we understand to dunk, to immerse, uh, to cause to be underwater. That's why when we dunk people, we call that a baptism. So that word is translated um, sometimes as washing or as a baptism because you could not just the act of being baptized, there's more, the things, there's more things that can get dunked underwater when they're being washed. If I want to wash a dish, maybe I dunk it underwater. And so the word is translated washings or baptisms just depending on the context, okay? But it's the same word. And understand this, that there are a lot of Old Testament washings, like, like lots of Old Testament washings. Um, there's a whole book, and I lay out some Levitical verses. We're not going to read them. I'm just going to put them up on the screen. And you'll be like, oh, yeah, there's a, a lot of washings. But the Old Testament washings, these regular, oh, you touch this, you got to go wash. You touch that, you got to wash. You laid down here, you got to wash. You were unclean for this, you got to go wash. Oh, dip yourself in the river seven times, you got to wash. There were washings after washings after washings in the Old Testament. The entire book of Leviticus, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy is a bunch of washings, okay? So the Old Testament regular washings pointed to, forward to, the idea of a singular one-time washing and baptism that we found in Christ Jesus. And so in the same way, we have the Old Testament. If you think like, what, there's got to have a pattern of doing that, that these things that were regular and recurring in the Old Testament are then summed up and simplified as one-time events in the New Testament, absolutely. Think about the Old Testament sacrifices. You had the bulls and the goats and the rams and all these things slain day after day after day, season after season, year after year, decade after decade for thousands of years. All the sacrifices pointed to the singular sacrifice of the perfect son, to die on the cross for our sins. And so yes, God has an absolute perfect pattern of saying these old things that we're repeating are pointing to the singular event later and fulfilled later in the New Testament. And so the washings, here they are, not even gonna read one of them. I'm just gonna like, hey, here it is for a second. You wanna read through? By all means, Leviticus is just fascinating. You read through them, read about the washings. Um, you can also just jump into Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy while you're at it. But there are a lot of washing verses. Don't take my word for it. Read them, please. We don't have the time today to go into each of those. But I do want to talk about the idea of the idea of washings and laying on of, excuse me, the idea of the washings and baptisms as being something important that these Hebrews, again, with their Old Testament knowledge, knew about the washings. They had spent years and decades doing the washings, but now he's always pointed everything from an Old Testament you know, context to how it's fulfilled the New Testament. He did that with the last 10 verses, right? Here you have Melchizedek, the old priest. Jesus comes from that line. The old priesthood uh, of Melchizedek is better than, superior than the Aaronic priesthood, the Levitical priesthood. He's been pointing how the things in the Old Testament are not as good and point and foreshadow to the better. So I want you to understand that the idea of the washings points to the better and the better is baptism. 
We sometimes use the phrase, and I think perfectly acceptable, we use the phrase that baptism is a public declaration of an inward decision. And it absolutely is, and it should remain that. We should continue using that phrase. But I hope you understand that baptism is so much more. It is so, there is so much more going on spiritually than just a declaration to the world. Because I could just shout it from a mountaintop. I could go up to the biggest street corner stand, whatever, and just say, hey, I love Jesus because he loved me. That would be a public declaration of an inner decision, right? So why then go through water and dunking and all that? I want you to please understand this. And we're going to go and look at Romans chapter 6. Romans 6 verses 3 through 8 is the proof text of what is going on specifically in baptism from a spiritual lens. It says, Paul writing to the church in Rome, says, do you not know that all of us have been, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe we shall also live with him. There are four major points, I'm going to highlight them in a second, that, that identify what baptism is. Baptism, first and foremost, is identifying with the death. We've been baptized, it says, into his death. We've been identifying with the burial, the raising from the dead, and the walking in newness of life. And I'll explain it to you this way. Here you are standing. You walk into the body of water, whether it be the Jordan Sea or it be a tub of water here or somebody's hot tub, whatever it may be. You walk into that water. The moment you go down and under, you are identifying as a person falling down to the ground. The idea of you are now dying. You die. You are identifying with the death of Jesus. As you go submerged underwater, it says here, you are identifying with the idea of that being buried. That old sin nature, that person who we were before we came to Christ, we are a new creation when we come to Christ. Well, if we're new, there's an old. That old sin nature is being buried underwater. And as you rise up, you are identifying with the idea that that old sin nature stays there dead and buried. You are rising up, identifying with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you then get out of that body of water and you walk in newness of life. So I hope you get that picture. There's a lot going on more than just, hey, I love Jesus, as it should be. You should be saying that. But goodness gracious, there is something beautiful going on there. I liken it to this. There's, there's, there's something, there's an animal, which is just gross. Anything that's got that many legs, nope, nope, nope. It just worms, caterpillars, anything that creeps on the ground, nope. See, people walking out already. Nope, nope, put up a worm, nope. But this happens to be uh, uh, just a caterpillar. And we know that these have a life cycle. A caterpillar looks like this. Understand that this is not a perfect analogy. So don't just, you know, there's no perfect analogy other than what Christ really did. So, but I hope you understand the visuals here. Because here we have the caterpillar turns. And we know it goes through these stages into this cocoon. Right? This should be everybody that's taken like fourth grade science at some point. You had, point you had to do this sort of thing. And if you never have, then 
welcome to the world of how butterflies are made, goes into a cocoon, and it literally comes out a butterfly. And a lot of people like this analogy because it really is two unique things. You are looking at a new creation when it comes out as a butterfly, right? You are a creepy, crawly worm on the ground, the lowest point, and now you soar above everybody else. So you get that part of the analogy, right? That's where it just kind of holds in. But you see that, 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 that old cocoon there on the right? You see that, like, dead carcass? Imagine the butterfly were to emerge out of that carcass, and that thing stuck to its leg, like something sticky just kind of like stuck to its leg. And it like tries to shake it, and it can't quite shake it. And it's just like, okay, well, I got to move on. I got to go, you know, forage for food and pollinate and do whatever butterflies do. And so it starts to fly away. A butterfly actually can fly away with the weight of that cocoon on its, on its legs. It can, it can float. It can do its thing. Do you think that butterfly, however, will reach like its fullness? Do you think it'll fly the way it was intended to fly with that dead thing stuck to its foot? I say no, absolutely not. It was meant to be just free, wings out, soaring, catching the wind. So too, as we get saved and we become a new creation, if we've got that old sin nature, it's on us and it's great. And it, I mean, it's just, it's word something new. That's the great part. But we have this thing that's why baptism often happened in the, in, in the New Testament like so quickly. There are pictures of people. I'm going to share that. I'm going to read this quick story to you. There's a story of um, Peter and it's called the Ethiopian eunuch. That is somebody from Ethiopia. That's like the, if you're looking at Africa, there's a horn of Africa here. It's like the, near the equator. Like he traveled all the way up to Israel to worship and then he came all the way back down. On his trip back down, he's riding in his chariot and he's reading the Bible. He's reading the Old Testament Isaiah. And Peter's told to like run up to this guy who he doesn't know, total stranger. Uh, but again, he's equipped to just tell people about Jesus. And so he runs alongside this guy and he begins to just talk to him. And we'll pick that story up right there, okay? We'll pick it up in verse 26, much easier. It says, but an angel of the Lord spoke to Philip saying, get up, go south to the road that ascends from Jerusalem to Gaza. It's a desert road. So Philip so Philip, I said Peter earlier, Philip, forgive me. Um, so he got up and went, and there was an Ethiopian eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure, and he had come to Jerusalem to worship. We talked about that. He was now returning and sitting in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. So Philip ran up and heard him reading the Isaiah the prophet and said, do you, do you understand what you're reading? Does that make any sense to you? And the guy said, as anybody reads sometimes in the Old Testament, how could I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to, Philip to come and sit up with him. And so it probably looked like this, this idea of, hey, he's got the scroll. Philip runs up to the, to the Ethiopian eunuch and he's like, they're having this conversation. And it goes on. Now, the passage of scripture, which the eunuch was reading was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, as a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he does not open his mouth. In humiliation, his judgment was taken away. Who will relate his generation? For his life is removed from the earth. And the eunuch answered, answered Philip and said, please tell me, is, who's this talking about? Is the prophet talking about himself or is he talking about someone else? Philip opened his mouth and began from this scripture, he preached Jesus to him. As they went along the road, they came to some water. This is the next verse. There's not like a dot, dot, dot. As they went along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, look, water. What prevents me from being baptized? 
Very interesting to me because that means here in verse 35, when it says he preached Jesus to him, in the preaching of Jesus, there was the understanding of baptism. That is, he explained, hey, you know what? We have sin. We need a savior. Okay, when you trust and believe and receive that free gift, know that you become a new creation. As a new creation, you've got an old sin nature. I tell you what, it's really helpful if you bury that old sin nature right away. So if you ever do reach out for that gift, you want to bury that old sin nature through baptism and then rise up and identify with the resurrection of Jesus Christ and move forward in maturity. And so the next thing, after he gets the full gospel, the eunuch says, look, there's water. It's right there. Why, why, can I get baptized now? Philip said, well, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And the eunuch answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And he ordered the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip as well as the eunuch, and he baptized him. He dunked him right there. I remember I got baptized. I got saved at 15, if you don't know. I've said that before. I didn't get baptized until I was 19. It was never explained to me. It wasn't a choice I made. I mean, I lived on an island. I'm in Hawaii. There's a lot of places that were there to get baptized. It just never crossed my path. Um, so at 19, I am, there I am in Tucson, Arizona, my first semester of my college year, and pastor teaches on baptism, goes through uh, the Acts right there, Acts 8, and I'm like, hey, I believe in Christ. Like, I should get baptized. I should do this thing. And so I go to my pastor. His name's Chris. I said, Chris, I think I should get baptized. He said, great. What are you doing this afternoon? I said, nothing. He said, great. Well, come on over. I'll gather the guys. So a bunch of brothers in Christ um, come to Pastor Chris's house, I remember it quickly, and I got my board shorts, um, I got a towel, and we go outside, and it's, you know, perfect 95-degree Tucson day, and I'm outside there, and, I, and I, I remember him saying the funniest of all pastoral jokes I've ever heard to this day. It was so low-key and just perfect, and it's what I needed to, like, you know, I was kind of, like, excited, anxious, if you will, about getting baptized, pretty big deal, um, and I remember he, 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 we get to the edge of the, just the outdoor jacuzzi hot tub, and he looks down, there's a bunch of brothers in Christ, and I'm, you know, just about to take my shirt off, whatever, and jump in there. And he looks down there and he says, man, there's a bunch of dead bodies in there. And I was like, oh, yeah, baptism, the burial. I was like, he had baptized hundreds of people in his hot tub. And I totally took the edge off, and I was like, well, add one more. And I remember I jumped right in there, and he jumped in, and I got dunked that day. And I can mark that day as a really big day for me. I can mark that day as a genuine step forward in maturity, not just as an obedient Christian now, obedient to the call by God himself in Matthew 28, 19, 20, to get baptized. Okay, that's one thing. But for me, the fruit of it was, I, I, had, I had three roommates at the time. And um, in the freshman dorms, I had three roommates, um, Rocky, Brett, and another guy. And I remember I had not really shared much about my faith. I had lived it, like, you know, there's things I didn't do as they were doing things, but there's things that I just kind of kept to myself. I remember after that day, I got a little bolder. I started to like talk about Jesus a little more, a little unashamed, if you will. And I remember I just, you know, Rocky, he was pretty far out there. So I was like, you know, he's not really wanting to have these conversations, but I had this guy, Brett. And Brett would be like, hey, what are you reading? Okay, well, come on over. Let's read it together. And he'd be like, hey, I got this thing going on. Can you pray for me? And again, not a Christian, but now wanting to read what I'm reading, wanting prayer for things. I begin to share and share. The course of six months, Brett becomes a Christian on a Saturday afternoon in our dorm in Coronado Hall, Tucson, Arizona, University of Arizona. And so he gives his life to Christ. 
And I explained the full gospel. I said, hey, man, there's no looking back. Your life's going to change for the better, maybe for the worse. Don't know yet what has God has planned for you. I'm going to tell you it's better eternally. God's got a plan and a purpose for your life. It ultimately ends up with you in heaven. That's what I can tell you. No false gospel. No, you're going to be rich. No, anything weird like that. I'm like, hey, don't know what God's planned for you, but I know he's got eternity planned for you now after this decision. He said, man, that's what I'm all about. I need that. And his sins were washed away that day, and he loved it. And I said to him, you know what? We've got to get you baptized. And he's like, yeah, yeah, we do. Now, he wasn't going to church. He didn't know Pastor Chris. He didn't know this. He's just a brother, two guys, being each other Christ. And I remember thinking, nearest body of water, nearest body of water. And there was a fountain. There's a fountain in Tucson, Arizona. The main fountain as you walk in, this like three-tiered fountain. And I was like, ah, I think that water is just barely deep enough to like, if he goes full flat, like he's under there. Like he's a skinny dude. The water's probably about 18 inches. He's about 12 inches. And I'm like, dude, let's go. And he said, let's go. We walked down there. I made two calls. I called a couple brothers. Hey, grab those guys. Grab those guys. Let's go down. Let's lay hands. Let's pray for this guy. Let's get him dunked today. He, he just accepted the Lord. We went down to the fountain in Tucson, Arizona, and we got him dunked right there. And I remember just thinking back onto that. I was like, man, this isn't who I was six months ago. I am not this guy. I am not the guy that talked to people about Jesus. I am not the guy who's like leading people to Christ. I'm like, that's not me. And I remember looking back to that moment when I got baptized and just being like, that's, that's the moment. That's the moment that, again, I, I feel like personally, I pressed on in maturity in those things. And so I tell you what, we do baptisms here at the church the second Sunday of every month. We do communion the first Sunday. We do baptism second Sunday. If you haven't been baptized, I can simply, this is your invitation. You come up to myself, anybody in the back, you come to anybody and you say, you look, brother, what you, did, what you talked about made sense. The Bible makes it pretty clear we should be baptized. I think I got this old sin nature on me. I want to get rid of it once and for all, bury it under the water. Let's do it. Anybody in the church will be glad to like, all right, let's make plans. Let's do it. And if you can't wait that long, we'll figure that out. You're like, hey, I'm, I just realized it's been 45 years I had this in nature. I want it off tonight. I promise you we'll figure that out. Amen? Amen. Yes? So please, that's your invitation. It doesn't matter what age you are, by the way, either. It's not like you have to wait till you're 45, 10. You could be 5, 6, 8, 12, 15, 38, whatever you are. If you know that your faith is in Christ, you know for absolute certainty that, hey, I am saved because of that gift right there, you ought to be dunked. Amen? Laying on of hands works like this. I'm not reading these either. There's a bunch of old, this is Leviticus again. I'll tell you, I'll read three and four. It looks like this. It says, they, they used to lay hands on the animal to transfer the sin onto the animal when the sacrifices were made, right? So if you had a sin offering, you would bring your ram, your bull, your goat, whatever was needed for, for that sin, and you would bring it to the priest, you would lay hands on the animal. And it didn't matter, again, they have a section up here for the priests, if you were a leader, if you're the, the whole congregation sinned, if any one person from the congregation sinned, they, had, they covered everybody. Anytime anybody sinned, there was an animal sacrifice that would be made, and there was a transferring of, of, of sin to the animal by the laying on of hands. And it says, I'll just read three and four, it says, if the anointed priest, this is even the priest's sins, so as to bring guilt upon the people, let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as an offering, sin offering for the sin he's committed, he shall bring the bull to the doorway of the tent of meeting before the Lord, and he shall lay his hand on the head of the bull and slay the bull before the Lord. So again, the idea of, I sinned, which I love that, by the way. In the Old Testament, they were acutely aware of sin. Every single time they had to bring a sacrifice, they're walking in there. It's, like, it's, it's kind of a walk of shame. I am a knucklehead. I sinned. Let's do this thing. And I, and I love that because there's no pretense of like, I'm perfect or I, I, I never sinned or anything. They're like, no, here I am again. And the priest is like, hey, Johnny, how you doing? Like, let's do it again. Like, same thing as yesterday. Yep, same thing. Like, you know, they're just laying, animals are going through day, like lots of animals. And so they laid hands on them. 
What does that point to? Again, all these Old Testament passages of laying on of hands, what does that point to in the New Testament? Because that's what he's always talking about with the Hebrews. What's that look like in Acts, in, in Acts 8? Is what it looks like. Understand this, Acts 8, these four verses here. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so this is, to, we can talk more about this later, but what's happening here is what's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. They had received the Lord. They had received that free gift. They had already been dunked in water. And now the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen upon them in a, different, in, in a separate and unique way. We'll talk about that another day. And they'd been baptized in water again. Then they began laying hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Again, it's... A, it's it's called the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's why sometimes if you look at these things, um, I listed out five different items. Some people listed out six because they put repentance from dead works and faith towards God as separate. But a lot of people actually look at these as three things. Like there's only three elementary principles and they come in pairs. And so the first pair is repentance from dead works and faith towards God. Some people see the second pair as laying on the, the washings and baptisms and laying on of hands because it includes the idea of the New Testament laying on of hands to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And that's why, in fact, baptisms is plural in this Hebrew passage, not because of, there's lots of people getting baptized, but because there are more than one. The Bible says you're baptized both in water and the Spirit. And so some people put two and three together. And likewise, as we push on to number four, some people put this with number five, I'm going to just cover them individually so we can talk about them like that and talk about how they pair up in a second. But number four is the idea of resurrection from the dead, being a foundational principle of God, the idea that you will rise from the dead. Me? You? Everybody? Yes. Every single human being will, in fact, resurrect from the dead. The Bible says that without a doubt. They will all resurrect. In Old Testament passages, New Testament, everybody resurrect. That is, you're not just a bunch of cells that die and then you stay dead. We have a spirit in us. That's the mortal side of us, the side that dies. We have a spirit which is eternal, which is immortal. And that spirit resurrects when we die. Please know this. In Daniel 12, 2, it says, many of those who sleep in the dust of the ground will awake. These to everlasting life. So some people will resurrect to everlasting life, but the others to disgraced and everlasting contempt. Covers everybody. Some will have eternal life, some not. First Corinthians says it like this. It says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep. Meaning he's the first one. He rose from the dead, but he's the first one. Everybody else is asleep. For since by a man came death, that man being Adam, we'll talk about that in a second, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. So we all died in Adam because of our sinful nature. Adam was a sinner. Everybody after him was a sinner. If you think, oh, if Adam hadn't have blown it, we'd all still be in paradise. Well, great. If you were there, you would have blown it too. If I was there, I would have blown it too. Everybody in all time has sinned. We all have sinned and fall short. So by one man, and it could have been any man, but it was Adam, we all have a death penalty. So by one man, that is Christ, there's going to be a resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits. After that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So our mortal bodies cannot inherit the, the eternal and spiritual things. Nor does the perishable inherit imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. 
We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. So even those who don't necessarily die, there's going to be a time coming in history when God's just going to resurrect everybody. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, and he's referring to the rapture at the last trumpet, for a trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable. We must go from from stuff and junk and atoms, these things, to something that won't perish for eternity. This mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. We sang that earlier. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sing? So again, it's the final conquering of death. Death, you are no more. You die, great, but now everybody is rising again. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. You can look at it this way. Um, death is brought about by sin, and sin was brought about by the law. Again, the law being that thing that we look at, and we look at that, and we say, okay, honor your mother and father. Nope, I didn't do that. Um, shouldn't commit adultery, shouldn't murder, shouldn't covet, lie, steal. Nope, did all those. Shouldn't have idols, should put God away first. Nope, 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 should have a rest. Nope, didn't do it. So the law says we sinned. Each and every one of us, we sin. So it brings about a death, because the wages of sin is death. But thanks be to God, thank you, Lord, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. So a simple passage to explain very clearly that we all die, but in order to move past the perishable, the things, and the Bible says one day the heaven and the earth, all these things like a cloak are going to get folded up and just done away with. There's going to be a new heaven, a new earth. God's got an, an eternal and spiritual setting for people. We have to resurrect from the grave. This is where it gets pretty deep. It's the last thought for the night. What are we resurrecting to? Passage in Daniel alluded to it. It's a passage uh, in the rest of the Bible that makes it very clear. There's going to be an eternal judgment. It's one of the elementary teachings of Christ is that there's going to be an eternal judgment. And please know, eternal judgment, I mean, the whole Bible, Old Testament, New Testament proclaims it. It says, the Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with equity. It'll be a fair judgment. My company that I work for is all about this DEI thing, um, diversity, equity, inclusion. I thought, man, what a great, if you could have like a, Jesus will be the one who makes things equitable. Amen to that. And so Ecclesiastes 12 says this, the conclusion, when all has been heard is, fear God, keep his commandments, this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment. Everything which is hidden, whether it's good or evil. And lastly, it says in Hebrews 9, it says, and inasmuch as it appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. We will die. We will face a judgment. There are absolutely two types of judgment that await us. Not all of us. I mean us as in mankind in general. Two types of judgment. And you go to one or the other, the Bible is absolutely clear on that. As essential teaching of Christ, the, the principles, elementary teachings, elementary and essential, you should understand this. There's a great white throne judgment, and there's what we call a Bema seat judgment. Great white throne judgment and a Bema seat judgment. I'm going to go over each of those with you and give you the verses to support those. Revelation 20, verses 11, 15, talk about the great white throne judgment. This is not the judgment you want to be at. It says, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, 
the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. So you've got two books. You've got a book of life, and you've got these other books. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And the Bible goes on to talk about how there's weeping and gnashing of teeth there. There are two books opened. One book, if your name is written in the book of life, that is the Lamb's book of life, that is your faith and trust have been put into Christ to be saved. Your name is written down. God says, he is mine and I am his. We cry out to him, Abba, Father, and he's got our name written in there. If your name is not written in the book, that is you've never put your faith in Christ, your deeds, everything you've done in your lifetime is written in another book. Every single thing, every time that you lie, cheated, steal, stole, everything you've ever done is written there. And I believe according to that as well, every single time that God knocked on your heart and he said, what you're doing is wrong, that's sin. You need a savior. Every time that God revealed himself supernaturally, otherwise just plain face of the day, every time someone came up to you and talked about the Lord and you just rejected that, it's recorded. So that you might not say, I never knew. Every single thing is written in that book. And you stand there with really no defense. It's a perfect recording. If your name's not in the book of life, you stand there and you're judged on those things. You're found guilty. And there's a penalty. Because this lake of fire, it's the wrath of God that Jesus took for us when we put our sins on him. He took that wrath. That's why our name's written over here. To everybody else who did not want, who chose to not have their sins put upon Jesus, listed right there for them. And they own that. They take accountability for that right then and there at the great white throne judgment. On the much brighter side, the Bema seat judgment, it's pronounced, it looks like this in the Greek like anybody cares. It's just pronounced Bema. You sometimes see it and you say Bema. It's pronounced Bema. And the judgment seat, this Bema seat judgment is where believers are rewarded We don't stand in a judgment like that where we look at what's guilty and not. We stand there to be judged like like who won? Like what's your reward? This gets the seat, I mean, in the idea of historicalness, the Bema seat was where the judge would stand at the finish line and kind of see who finished the race first and second and third. And as they finished, like, oh, you got first. Here's your reward. Here's second. Here's your reward. But they had to have somebody to kind of call it and say, okay, yes, yes, yes. You guys are winning that race. Here you go. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, we must all appear before the, this is Bema here, of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he's done, whether good or bad. And the Bible says clearly, like those things that were done in the Lord, those things that, that, are, that are like precious metals, those things that are gold and silver, they get refined in the fire and they pass through. Those things that we just kind of were selfish about and did for wrong motives and intentions, God knows that. He's, he likens it to wood, hay and stubble. It just kind of burns up and okay, no reward for that. It's like, I got something for you for all the other stuff that you did. Romans 14 says it this way, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the Bema of God. 
For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall, shall give praise to God, so then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. So we stand before the Bema, it says very clearly. What are these rewards? What awaits the believer in Christ in eternity as they stand before the judgment seat of God? Man, this is where my hope is. This is where my everything is. You, we, we are, we're rewards-driven, by the way, if you don't know that. God is not wanting to keep these rewards a secret. And if you're like, oh, no, it's not just... No, God's telling you the reward that you might fix your eyes at the finish line for the reward that waits for you. Do you understand that? Some people, like, in this kind of weird sort of humility, like, oh, no, I'm just going to run. Like, no, no, run the race to win the prize. There's a prize at the end of it. Do you understand? The stuff we're going through in this life, we're enduring, we're going through so that we can win a prize. God makes it clear, he says in 1 Peter 5, 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, he will receive, you will receive, excuse me, the unfading crown of glory. 2 Timothy 4 says this, I have fought the good fight, Paul says. He says, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me, he had his eyes fixed, there is laid up for me, he says, the crown of righteousness, which the Lord himself, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Revelation 2 says this. Jesus himself, to the church at Smyrna, he says, do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil's about to cast some of you into prison so that you'll be tested and you will have tribulation for 10 days. Be faithful until death and I will give you the crown of life. He says the reason you can endure all the junk of this world is fix your eyes on the fact that I've got a crown waiting for you. James 1.12 says this. This is our last verse. If we've got Shane and the worship team coming on up, that'd be great. James 1.12 says simply this. It says, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And so these elementary teachings, again, you want to make them six, you want to make them five, you want to put three pairs, it's, 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 it's all okay. But understand this, that we need to press on. We need to, as the Bible says in 6.1, press on to maturity. Not laying again these things. You should know these things. They should be an anchor to your soul. You should wake up and just be like, man, I'm so glad I've turned from my sin and turned to living God. You should be able to teach these things. To some extent, you should genuinely have a very simple, even basic understanding. And I tell you this, and I, and I, I, if someone had said this to me and I was 15, 16, I would probably say, I'm not there, I don't know. And that's okay. Because it's not saying that everybody at every time should be. There is a time to be, by the way, like we're in elementary school. There's years at which you should spend in these things. As you come to Christ, there's a period of which it takes you year. Elementary school, for me, was six years, first through six. There's a time that you spend learning these principles, digging into them, coming to the Wednesday night Bible study, coming on Sunday, small group Bible studies, reading the Bible on your own, reading commentaries, praying, seeking answers from the Lord. There's, there's a period in which we grow and we learn in these things. Yes? But then there's a period in which he's like, you got to have those down. You got to dig deeper now. You got to press forward in maturity to the point where now you're, 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 you're discipling people, teaching them up, raising them up in the Lord. That's his plan, his purpose, his goal for each of us. So I don't know where you are in your journey of these elementary teachings. Man, I tell you, if I'm talking to the Wednesday night crew, 
different than talking to Sunday morning. If you're talking to the Wednesday night crew, like you, 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 you've likely got these things. It's good to revisit them occasionally. But now, my hope that wherever we are in our spiritual journey, our walk with Christ, that we would just choose, let us press on to maturity. Like, don't, don't plateau. If you're like, man, I've kind of been here for a while in my walk with Christ, like, you, you gotta, like, step it up. Dig in, like, shut yourself. Start to share the gospel more with people. And I tell you, I, I felt in my heart to share this, and I prayed, like, what do I do? And I remember not being equipped to share the gospel with people, but somebody told me a really, really cool way to get the gospel people without being the one to share it with them. And I tell you this, it was a simple question. I learned to ask people, what are you doing this weekend? What do you mean, that question? I would ask someone, what are you doing this weekend? And they would say, oh, we're doing this thing, I got a game, blah, 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 blah. But you know what they do after? They tell me what they're doing. Wonder what they ask me? What are you doing this weekend? And I simply say this, I'm going to church, want to come? I was too scared to say, oh, by the way, here's, and I didn't really have an intro and in how to like segue into things. And I've, I've since learned, and, and, and we can talk some more about that another day. But at the time, I remember just being young in Christ and, and even just old in Christ and just being like, what are you doing? They'd be like, oh, I'm doing this. Like, what are you doing? Oh, you know, on Sunday morning, I go to church. It's just on the street. It's a really amazing church. Everybody's super loving and kind. You want to come? You know what people say to that? More often than not, no. But I gave them an invite. Tell you what, people have said yes. I said yes. Jeremy invited me. 15 years old. A 14-year-old invited me and said, want to come to church? My very first time I ever came to church, I gave my life to Jesus. One time. Just because he said, you want to come to church? Pressing on a maturity can happen a bunch of different ways. You can stretch yourself to... To, to, to fill the things and the promises that God has for you in a whole bunch of different ways. But I tell you what, this is it. We press on to maturity. I got these seven bullet points that just recap the passage. It says, we press on so that we're not dull of hearing. We press on so that we're not like infants and carnal and fleshly Christians. We press on so that we can be teachers and bring others to Christ. We press on so that we're not stuck learning the same elementary principles year over year. We press on so that we're not tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by those who are seeking to deceive us. We press on so that we can grow in our faith and function as a healthy part of a growing body of Christ. And we press on so that we can receive all the rewards the Lord has planned for us. Let's pray. Father, we need you. I find it hard sometimes, Lord, just to press on in myself. I've got, I've got the flesh that I sometimes deal with, and I, that's why I know you say to crucify our flesh daily and pick up our cross and follow after you. I just sometimes need help with that. I know, Lord, just being real with you, Lord, sometimes I'm just lazy. I am dull of hearing. So I pray that you'd help us each with that. But Lord, help us not to lay again these elementary principles. Help us to just press in to you. May we fall deeper in love with you. Maybe some of us, Lord, have lost our first love. We wouldn't be the first to do that, Lord. You had to write a whole section to people in a church to do that. Lord, help us to, to rekindle that romance with you, to pick up our word and just realize how great, how awesome is our God. Father, you are faithful, you are good, 
you love us beyond all measure. And so to that, I just give thanks. I praise you. We love you, Lord. You are a good, good father. And so may this word, whether it's the encouragement to be baptized, the encouragement to press deeper, the encouragement, Lord, just to, to know you better, the encouragement to teach others, whatever it may be, Lord, would you just, would your Holy Spirit work that out in each of our hearts as you will, as you want. Your will be done, we say. And so we just end by saying we love you too, Father. We know you loved us first. But just thank you, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.